Hello and welcome to this episode of the Stub Society's podcast series. My name is Joe Davis and I'm the President of the Stub Society for Defence and Foreign Affairs and I really appreciate you joining us today for this really exciting episode. Our interview this week was really, really cool. I spoke with Sir Mark Lyle Grant, a former UK National Security Advisor and UK Ambassador to the United Nations. In our interview, we touched on a number of really interesting topics. We talked about the biggest threats to UK national security, both in his time as National Security Advisor and today, terrorism, hostile state actors. We also talked about threats to democracy and the rule-based order around the world, and whether the UN can ever live up to its promise. I want to thank Sir Mark again for taking the time to speak with us. We at the Stub Society really, really appreciate it. If you enjoy this interview, I implore you to check out our website, that's www.stubsociety.org.uk, and follow our Facebook page so that you never miss an episode or an event in future. We've got a bunch of really interesting podcast interviews coming out in the next few weeks and months, so I hope you'll come back for those. Now, without further ado, here was my interview earlier with Sir Mark Lyle Grant. I'm incredibly pleased to be joined today by Sir Mark Lyle Grant. Sir Mark had a distinguished diplomatic career with the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, which spanned almost four decades and saw him serve across four continents. From September 2015 until his retirement from government service in the summer of 2017, he served as the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. Prior to this, he served for six years as the UK Ambassador and Permanent Representative to the United Nations in New York. He was also, between 2007 and 2009, the Foreign Office Political Director, serving as the Principal Advisor to the Foreign Secretary on Strategic Foreign Policy Issues. And between 2003 and 2006, he was the UK High Commissioner to Pakistan. His earlier postings included a stint as Private Secretary to the Minister for Europe, Director of the FCO, Africa Department, and at British Embassies in Africa, in South Africa and France. Uh, so Mark, I'm, I'm incredibly pleased uh, that you're joining us today. I'm really excited for this interview. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have this opportunity to uh, talk with the Stubbs Society. Thank you. Okay, so um, we're going to begin, you know, so the title for this episode is, is British National Security, and, that, and that's what we're going to talk uh, a lot about today. We're also, um, you know, if it's all right with you, going to touch on a few issues to do with your time as the UN ambassador, uh, so the, as in the British ambassador to the UN, and sort of issues that you dealt with um, at the UN. But, but we're going to start um, by talking more about um, British national security. And obviously, like, you know, the reason that, that I wanted to talk with you about this is because you, your final uh, career in government service was as the, the UK National Security Advisor, or, or sorry, should I correctly say, like the, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. Um, and I was wondering if before we kind of talked about like any issues um, to do with this, if I, I think, you know, the, the UK National Security Advisor is, is a less known role. It's not, you know, I think most like members of the society listen to this podcast are kind of familiar with the US National Security Advisor and kind of have, have an idea of what that means, you know, Kissinger and Bolton and, and, and maybe an idea of that. But probably not quite as much an idea of what our national security advisor does and sort of the history of that role. So if we could bring, could you kind of just kind of explain, you know, what you did as national security advisor and, and what that role actually is? Yes, very happy to do that. You're right that it's 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 a more backroom role, if you like, than the US uh, equivalent as national security advisor, who tends to take a more public position um, as a member of the principles uh, in, uh, in Washington. So we also are relatively new to the idea of a national security advisor and a national security council. This was something introduced by David Cameron when he uh, became uh, prime minister in 2010. Um, and the national security advisor role really has uh, three hats, if you like. The first is as personal advisor to the prime minister on security, intelligence, foreign and defense uh, policy questions. That's a role in which he reports directly, obviously, and works very closely with the Prime Minister. 
The second role is as secretary to the National Security Council. And the third is as head of the National Security Secretariat in the Cabinet Office. Now, those two latter roles are more uh, traditional, if you like, civil service roles on which the National Security Advisor reports not to the Prime Minister, but to the Cabinet Secretary. And that distinction uh, is actually quite important. And it's one of the reasons that the first National Security Advisor in 2010s, Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts now, um, established it sitting in the Cabinet Office, um, not actually in Number 10 Downing Street, to make clear that this was a, a civil service position. So although you work extremely closely with the Prime Minister, it is still a civil service position. I mean, thank you for that explanation. So that really um, kind of brought out, I mean, three separate issues that, that I'd like to discuss with you um, about the role. Um, and, and you know, I'm trying to think of, of the, the kind of best order in which to tackle these. So, um, you know, if it's all right, I'm, I'm going to come back in, in a couple of minutes to this idea of the, the, the National Security Advisor being a civil service role, because I think, you know, there's an interesting discussion to, to have about maybe how that's that's changing at the moment and, and perhaps your, your thoughts on that. But, you know, if that's right, I'm going to park that just for a second and come back to that in, in a minute. Um, what I'd first like to, to ask you about that is, Okay, so you know you're you're a, you're the, the principal advisor on on national security issues, as the kind of title suggests, to the prime minister, and you're doing this what between 2015 and 2017, and and I was wondering, um, you know, as as best as you can, I understand there'll be sensitivities about the way that you can kind of discuss these things, but if if you could just kind of lay out to our listeners, what were the kind of the biggest national security threats that you were working on that time? What were the kind of the key events, the key challenges, and the things that you know took up the most of your your time? Well, I think the first and possibly the most important uh, task uh, was in the second half of uh, 2015, was drawing up the uh, National Security and Defence Review, the Strategic Defence and Security Review. Because every five years, really every new government has introduced a new uh, Security and Defence Review. So when uh, David Cameron won the 2015 uh, general election, and move from a coalition government to a purely conservative government, he wanted a new uh, uh, security review. And the National Security Advisor role is to oversee that. So bringing together various players around Whitehall, intelligence agencies, etc., and putting together a document, which in 2015, for the first time, we combined with the uh, National Risk Register and the National Security Strategy more widely, uh, into a single document which set out how we saw the threats and challenges facing the United Kingdom. And that identified, in very broad terms, I mean, it's quite a lengthy document, um, four major threats and challenges. Um, one was the threat of extremism and terrorism, which was clearly rising uh, at that time. Not just Islamist terrorism, although that was a main focus, but also a right-wing terrorism. Secondly, you had the state-based threats um, and particular focus on Russia, which was being particularly aggressive, as we know, in a whole range of different areas following the annexation of Crimea, assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, etc., etc., and the sort of rising instability around the world, which posed a direct threat to Britain and its allies. The third uh, area was cyber uh, and technology developments. So 
it was a, a rising trend of cyber threats where government systems, businesses were being hacked, etc. sometimes by state actors, sometimes by non-state actors. And the fourth, uh, and possibly in my mind, the biggest strategic threat was the erosion of the rules-based international order. Now, beneath those four overriding threats and challenges, of course, there was a great deal uh, of detail about other threats like you've got drugs and human trafficking, uh, all those sorts of threats, of course, serious organized crime were all in there, pandemics, you know, the health risks, you know, are all covered uh, at that time in 2015. But I think those were the four overriding ones. And then from that, uh, those risks and challenges, one drew up a plan for what sort of capabilities the country needed um, to tackle those threats. So whether that was uh, the defense equipment uh, program, um, greater spending on counterterrorism, um, more money for the intelligence agencies, etc. There was a range of uh, decisions that were taken. So that was really the overriding uh, document, which I think actually in the intervening five years has held up very well, because those threats have actually got even worse, arguably, over the last five years, and are probably still uh, the overriding challenges and threats. So that was the main task um, uh, in my first six months or so uh, in the job. But to be honest, it's one of those issues, a bit like when I was at the United Nations, where you are quite uh, responsive to crises as they arose. So there were terrorist incidents that had to be uh, dealt with. There were political problems that needed resolving. There were defense issues that had to be uh, tackled at, at different stages. So there, it's a very wide-ranging role. Um, Syria, Syria conflict, which is its height. We had you know, weekly meetings that I chaired on Syria, for instance. Uh, the National Security Council met every week and would look at two different subjects every week, you know, looking at the long-term strategic relationship with China, uh, how to deal with Russia, um, the future of Diego Garcia. I mean, there was a whole range of issues that were tackled in the National Security Council. And then beyond that, there was the oversight role of the intelligence agencies. So as National Security Advisor, you are responsible for the three main intelligence agencies in the United Kingdom, um, having sort of properly used the money allocated to them for the objectives they have set uh, for themselves. So I would have regular meetings with the heads of the three intelligence agencies to check what they were doing, how they were spending the money, um, and when it was being effectively uh, operated. So it, was, it's, it is a very wide-ranging role. I think everyone tackles it possibly in a different uh, position, in a different uh, way. Um, but those are the sorts of issues that uh, came up when I was there. It's worth perhaps mentioning that you also travel with the Prime Minister on basically all overseas trips, um, certainly outside Europe, but they're often inside Europe as well. Uh, thank you for that really interesting um, and, and helpful explanation. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's it, it's interesting because you, you sort of answered actually what my follow-up question was going to be in, in, in the answer, which was that, you know, this is a role that you uh, left, what, about three years ago? And I, and I was I was wondering, sort of, for your perspective as now somebody outside of the government, how 
yeah, security threats to the UK have changed in, in, in those three years. Uh, but I'm, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to this, but, um, you know, it, it, w- does it seem as though the, the threat from Russia has, has got worse in that period? Does it seem as though the threat from China, the threat from terrorism, or, or are things pretty, pretty similar? Have they got worse? Have they got better since, since you left that, that role? I think most of the threats we identified are still threats and most of them have got worse. Um, Particularly the last one, perhaps the erosion of the rules-based international order is is really worrying for the the United Kingdom because as an open democratic trading nation, we rely more heavily than most on an effective rules-based international order. We benefited massively from the international order that we helped to create after the world too. So that is, uh, as I said earlier, I think the biggest long-term strategic concern for the United Kingdom. I think uh, clearly um, health risks have perhaps naturally become more evident to most people, although, as I say, it was covered in the the, uh, review in 2015. Um, I think the China threat has uh, certainly got worse. Uh, The focus of state-based threats was probably more on Russia than it was on China. Um, And I think, frankly, although there's been a lot of attention paid to China, it is worth making the distinction even now that China is not fundamentally looking to undermine our way of life in a way that Russia is. So Russian actions are designed to undermine our institutions, weaken our democracy, weaken the the union of the United Kingdom, um, undermine our political systems, etc. China is not doing that. China is exerting its authority in a more aggressive way in the region and is doing a much more aggressive uh, uh, cyber activity, etc. externally, but basically focused on building up their own economy and power base in the region. They're not looking at this stage anyway to essentially undermine the rules-based international order completely or to uh, undermine the British way of life. So I would still put the Russian threat as a, as a more serious short-term threat, although China clearly poses uh, uh, a bigger in a sense, strategic that is a, a really fascinating distinction that you've you've drawn there, actually. Um, and I was wondering if, if just briefly you could kind of explain what why why is that the case? You know, I think often, um, especially in kind of like like um, I don't know, you know, popular media circles, not not in like specifically academic circles, like China and Russia, from a British perspective, are spoken about in the same breath. They are you know threats. They are hostile nations. Um, what what is the difference between what why is it that that you're saying that you know russia is seeking to undermine our our way of life but but china is not why why are those two countries approaching us differently well i mean russia is a neighbor of europe and essentially therefore a neighbor of the uk china is not so i mean that is is one reason why what russia does in its region impacts on us more than what china does in its region so the annexation of Crimea, which was the first forcible changing of borders since World War II, was a fundamental attack at the rules-based international order that affected uh, us directly. You know, Chinese uh, militarization of the South China Sea and sort of seizing territory that is claimed by uh, various neighboring countries is also a threat to the international order, but doesn't directly impose on our security because it's a lot further away. Now, if 
we were the Philippines government, it would obviously be the other way around. So it is largely a question of geography. But the other aspect is that Russia is involved in some activities that the Chinese are not. You know, Russia is assassinating opponents uh, in Europe, including in the UK, as we've seen on at least two occasions uh, in the UK. They are directly challenging our air defenses in, by um, infiltrating our, our air zone and our water sea zones around the oceans, etc. in a way, for instance, that China is not. They are uh, uh, involved in spreading misinformation campaigns, both at the time of the Scottish independence referendum and at the EU Brexit uh, referendum, um, which China is not. So, you know, these are direct attacks against the UK in a way that China is not. Now, it's important to say that China is a massively rising power and Russia, I mean, China is a rising power and Russia is a fading power. I mean, the Russian economy is very narrowly based. It's about the size of Spain, um, you know, it's, it's got a falling population, whereas China is the second largest economy in the world, which should soon be the largest, etc. And so, in strategic terms, China is the much more uh, serious, longer-term threat. Um, but in the immediate term, as I say, the Russian direct actions are affecting the British public and British security in a way that Chinese are not. Uh, thank you for, for that explanation. So uh, I'm I'm curious, and you've 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 raised this issue that um you know I was I, I was you, you piqued my interest when you said that from those four issues that were identified uh, in the review, the kind of the biggest one, the longest term one, was the erosion of the rules based order, um, and perhaps incorrectly, but I mean I associate the rules based order as you know with a liberal theory of international relations, which I therefore also associate with liberal democracy and with uh, strengthening democracy. Um, and, and so that brought me on to a question that, that I, I knew that I wanted to ask you, which was that, you know, it, it's obviously the British government talks a lot about how, you know, a part of the British government's foreign policy is the strengthen of democracy and the encouraging of, of democracy, because democracies don't go to war with each other. And we generally think democracies are a good way of, of governing countries. But Many people, pretty much most people, agree that at the moment, at least, democracy as an idea, as a way of states running themselves, is is under threat around much of the world. Right. And I was interested to hear your views on sort of where does that threat come from? What are the biggest challenges to democracy around the world at the moment? And and you know what is standing in democracy's way? What what is threatening democracy around the world at the moment? Well, that's a very uh, interesting question, Joe, and and. You know, requires quite a sort of lengthy uh, answer, but it impinges also on my time as ambassador of the, of the United Nations, which is a good viewpoint on seeing some of these trends. Um, and it's worth just recalling a little bit that the current rules-based international order that was built up after the Second World War, with a huge amount of, you know, British-American input, was essentially put together by the winners of the Second World War. And it was therefore, as you rightly say, created in their image. So it was created in an image of liberalism. It was a liberal image based on uh, human rights, uh, democracy, uh, free trade. And that system, you cannot exaggerate how important it was in 
covering all aspects of international relations, everything from civil aviation to the environment to telecommunications, etc. Everything was governed by that system, institutions, uh, and guidelines. Now, although uh, there were there was opposition to that from the start, particularly from the Soviet Union, they weren't who preferred to do sort of bilateral deals, arms deals with, with the United States. They weren't in a position really to uh, prevent the globalization of that uh, liberal rules-based international order that became known as the Washington Consensus. However, at the end of the Cold War in 1989, Berlin Wall came down, etc., Eastern Europe became free, there was a, a short, and it literally was short, around sort of less than maybe 20 years, 25 years, a golden age of this liberal order. Suddenly, you've got a huge number of new institutions, new norms being developed. So you had the Human Rights Council, the International Criminal Court. Um, you had UN peacekeeping operations suddenly proliferating around the world. You had new concepts of humanitarian intervention, responsibility to protect. All of these were initiatives um, by the West, and all of them went in a rights-based direction. Now, what I noticed at the United Nations was that from about 2012-2013 onwards, we saw a more systematic pushback against that uh, liberal order. And it was led by a combination of uh, Russia, um, some conservative Muslim countries, um, and also uh, some, in some cases, the Vatican, right-wing NGOs in the United States. Because one of the rights that was uh, pushed forward during the Golden Age was were women's rights and LGBT rights. And in a sense, it was the LGBT rights that were the sort of pointy edge of the spear. Um, because the liberal countries were pushing rights which a lot of, uh, you might say, neutral countries um, in Africa and the Caribbean felt uncomfortable with countries where homosexuality is illegal, for instance. Now, that bound together with the countries that were implacably opposed to the system um, in leading to a pushback. And there are a number of factors, I think, which are relevant to this that are just perhaps worth mentioning. One was the military interventions in Libya and Syria. Uh, Iraq, rather, and Libya, more than Syria. Because there is no doubt that many countries, not just the opponents of it, the Russians and the Chinese, etc., felt that the West had exploited and abused the concepts of responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention in a sense to uh, pursue regime change and impose democratic norms on countries that weren't ready for it. That was a problem. I think the 2008... Uh, financial crisis was also important because that undermined faith that the Western elites could actually manage the globalization in the global economy. And then you put that together with the geopolitical changes, the rise of China, and China beginning to develop uh, parallel, um, even competitive organizations like the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Agreements and the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, etc. All these sort of new bodies came up, which were a little bit different, 
And they had one thing in common, which is they didn't include the United States. And you then saw a pushback. And so you've got a situation now where a number of countries actually admire the alternative, if you like, Chinese model, a sort of um, authoritarian liberalism, if you like, that China has pursued. And some countries in the region think, well, actually, maybe that is a better way. And when they see the sort of disarray and chaos and crime, etc., in some of the liberal democracies, they're thinking, well, maybe that uh, uh, is not the case. And so for that reason, probably for the first time since the Second World War, I do not think we can take for granted the ultimate triumph of um, liberal economics and democracy. And so you're right to say that that uh, democracy is a threat. So whereas you had, you know, Fukuyama talking about uh, the end of history back in 1989 as communism was defeated, actually we're entering an even uh, sort of unprecedented period where we cannot take for granted the sort of things we have taken for granted over the last 75 years. And, well, I mean, that was a... a... A fantastic explanation. I, I really appreciate that. I gave you, as you said, like a very big question and, and you answered it in a very systematic way, which I, I really appreciate. It, it drew out a, a number of issues that I want to, to touch upon. The the first is, you know, the, the end of that answer, really a, a burning question that came into my mind then is, I yeah, I, I think that's a really solid explanation for the, the challenges to the rules-based order and, and to, uh, you know, liberal democracy. D- to what extent do you think the United States and the United Kingdom need to bear responsibility for that when at the moment you have, you know, a US president that in Portland, you know, basically unmarked uh, police officers kidnapping people in in vans and and a president who seems to just have not just like not care about rules and procedures, but but seem to have like a real disdain for any kind of weakness and constraint by any kind of rule at all and and in, in this country you know we don't we don't have the same situation but we we are you know currently in the process of of withdrawing from one of the biggest you know international kind of liberal um like trading blocks and and groupings of, of nations most successful ones in the world um to what extent do, do, do we people sat in in london and, and washington who are kind of bemoaning the fall of this order have to kind of say well yeah but hang on aren't, aren't we actually destroying this order ourselves yeah, that's a fair question, although I would distinguish quite sharply between the United States and the UK. It's a bit unfair to, to put them, both of them in, in the same box, but let me deal with both. Um, there is no doubt that it is particularly worrying that at a time when the international rules-based order is under threat, that the traditional champion of that order, the President of the United States, does not actually believe in it himself. That is extremely damaging because no longer is the United States the shining city on the hill that people can look to and aspire to as the model of uh, a liberal champion, if you like. Because what President Trump has done is he has uh, undermined the international system by pulling out, for instance, of the Human Rights Council and the WHO, by pulling out of climate change agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, etc., and shown his distaste for multilateralism um, and wanting to do everything bilaterally uh, with the slogan, 
America first. And that has been very damaging, I think, for America's allies. And I think uh, President Trump himself underestimates the value that the United States has or the benefits that it has got from this liberal order. He thinks that the globalization of the liberal order allows other countries to uh, get a free ride from the United States or uh, take the United States for fools um, or get them to pay for things that you know they should be paying for themselves. You know, and of course, there is a germ of truth in all those uh, positions. But the reality goes back to what I was saying earlier, that this is based on our model and our value system, and we have therefore benefited the most from it. And to throw that away, I think, is, is very dangerous. So, yes, uh, I would be critical of uh, President Trump's approach to uh, the rules-based international order. Now, United Kingdom, you could argue that the same is true because we are pulling out of the European Union. Um, uh, yes, that was a particular political decision that has its own dynamics, of course, uh, going back, which we, we can discuss. Um, I don't think it necessarily undermines the system. If it had broken up the European Union, you could say yes, but it hasn't actually. And the European Union is weaker without the United Kingdom, but it will uh, continue and uh, will probably expand further in the future. So I don't think that in itself is a, is a, is a problem for the international order. It may be a problem for the United Kingdom, but that's a slightly different question. Uh, yeah, I, I, I th yeah, I, I, I wasn't trying to kind of equate like, um, yeah, leaving the European Union to uh, the, the Trump presidency, and and I think you're you're right to 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 draw a distinction um, between those. But w what I'm curious to hear is, you know, through this interview, I've I've definitely got the impression of somebody who really believes in multilateralism, who 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 believes in um, liberal international institutions. There is nothing for, for an, an idealist. There is nothing. There's no greater example of that than the UN and the UN headquarters um, in New York City. You know, every every country in the world equally represented, uh, coming together to, to deal with the big issues of of the day. Um, and I'd be curious because I don't know. The, the more that you read about the UN, the, the more you get the impression that many people, you know, perhaps like myself, have a, have an idealized vision of the UN but then work for or at the UN for a few years and come out you know just incredibly bitter and like this is a this is a failed institution that that, that can't get anything done how did your impression of the UN change over six years there you know arriving in 2009 leaving in 2015 did you become more optimistic less optimistic and and how did it shake or, or change your faith in the UN and in multilateralism I don't think it fundamentally changed my approach to multilateralism. Um, I had worked a lot on European Union uh, policy before uh, that, although it was the first time I was obviously in, in New York. Um, but I came out reinforced by the importance of multilateralism, certainly. Um, and I, I was struck, as a slight digression, you know, when, when after the 2010 election, you know, the Conservative government had an, a manifesto that was pretty uh, bilateralist, if you like, in opposition, um, because of the Euroscepticism of the Conservative Party, obviously, and the UN was sort of implemented by that. 
And David Cameron's view was that, you know, we could do things bilaterally. We were a big enough country, we could have bilateral region, uh, with the Commonwealth, you know, the Five Eyes community, etc. Um, we didn't have to bother too much about multilateral institutions like the European Union and the UN. Well, he very quickly realized, and there was a couple of reasons, of course, the Liberal Democrats came into coalition and they are much more multilateralist by, by instinct. But when he wanted to actually do something, which in uh, 2011 was uh, Libya, he realized that he couldn't do that without authorization from the UN Security Council. And suddenly, all the focus came on the United Nations and could we get military authorization to take military action against the conflict in uh, Libya. And so he went through a transition, I think, and became much more than a multilateralist in his own personal views as a result of that experience. Now, my experience of the UN is that you know, it is a unique organization, and there's no doubt that if it didn't exist, you would have to invent it, because it is the only place in the world where all 193 countries come together. So, you know, there might be 150 embassies in Washington, 125 in the UK or whatever, but this is the only place in the world. And because of that, it creates a platform for agreements that can be reached. Now, people focus primarily on conflict peace and security issues in the UN, and that's the Security Council, and I've probably spent, you know, over 50% of my time on those issues, and they were deeply frustrated. But the failures of the UN are the failures of individual member states, not of the system. It's not like the European Union. The European Union has legal personality. The UN does not have legal personality. It is an intergovernmental body, whereas you rightly said, one country has one vote, at least in the General Assembly. So you've got China with 1.4 billion people. You've got Tuvalu with 11,000 people. Both have one vote. Now, what have they got in terms of their interests in common? None at all. You know, what is uh, the United States spending $700 billion on defense got in common with Costa Rica, which doesn't have an army, or, or Qatar, the richest country in the world per capita, you know, $128,000 per head per capita got in common with the Central African Republic at $350. You know, so obviously the, the interests are extremely divided. But when the UN, in inverted commas, can't resolve the Syria conflict or the Libya conflict or the Yemen conflict or whatever, it is because individual powerful members of the Security Council have blocked uh, that. That should not take away from the many things that the UN has achieved by being this universal, unique platform, like the climate change agreement, which was only possible because of the United Nations auspices, the arms trade treaty, the first time, uh, you know, the non-proliferation treaty, uh, you know, all the agreement on uh, sustainable development goals to eliminate poverty in the world, all these things were negotiated around uh, the United Nations. Even the Iran nuclear deal, which was done by a smaller group of countries, the E3 plus three, um, nonetheless had to be endorsed by the UN Security Council. They needed the Security Council to impose the sanctions to get Iran to negotiate, etc. So whatever agreements have been reached around the world has been enabled by the United Nations. And that doesn't even, you know, put onto the picture all the things that the UN is doing in terms of vaccinating 
you know, 45 million children and all this sort of stuff around the world. So there, there's a huge amount that the UN does. And although its failings are obvious to all of us, and I am very critical of some of the things that have happened, you have to blame the individual member states rather than the institutions. So to, to a certain extent, um, I 100% agree with that. And, and, and I think, you know, it's a common phenomenon reported of like, you know, not naming any names, but particular administrations um, ensuring something gets blocked at the UN and saying, oh, the terrible UN did nothing about crisis X, right? Yeah, but the UN is simply, as you say, like the the collection of, of states. You can't blame the UN because the UN didn't make any decisions. Um, is is mostly true. There is, there is a slight flaw in the argument, which is that it's not there, there is there is a problem with the UN that is more than the member states, right? Because there is the veto at the Security Council, um, which means it's not. I'm not. I'm not saying that then means the UN Secretary uh, General is is responsible for the the failure to to act over Syria, which which you know you described as your your, your greatest regret um, from your, your time at the UN. I'm I'm not saying that is the UN's fault as in the UN's flag, but that is the fault partially. Yeah, it's the fault of, of Russia who using their veto, but it is partially the fault of the institutional design that gave that veto. Um, I'm I'm not just blaming Russia. It's the same uh, when motions that should have been passed about Israel that are stopped by uh, the US. Um, and I mean, rightly or wrongly, it was, you know, the fact that uh, the, the Bush administration, the Blair administration could not get UN authorization um, for the invasion of, of Iraq. And, and those are three like very different examples, obviously. But yeah, it is the fault of the, the nation that is using the veto. But, but it's also the fault of the veto existing. Do you not think that I agree all of this good that the UN does? It is like just severely hampered by the fact that these five permanent Security Council countries uh, can veto anything. So you, you, the UN can never do anything that is against the interests of America, Russia, France, uh, China. Uh, the UK, but but it can do something against the interests of Ghana because Ghana can't veto it. Would do you think that the veto kind of fundamentally means the UN can't do what the UN should be able to do? Of course, the veto does, as you say, allow countries that have the veto to block is, is issues that are of fundamental national concern for themselves. So. The international community was less able to respond to the annexation of Crimea because Russia just vetoed everything. Likewise, the Syria conflict because of Russian interests in Syria. But you have to go back to why the veto was set up in the first place. And the veto was set up in the first place because of the failure of the League of Nations after the First World War to prevent the Second World War. And the reason the League of Nations fell apart was that some major powers, including the United States, never joined the League of Nations. They did join the UN because of the veto. Now, if you were able, which of course you're not under the current rules, to take away the veto, those countries would leave the UN. There's absolutely no question of that. Russia, China, the United States at least, would leave the, the UN. And then you would lose all the benefits of the United Nations because it would no longer be universal and it would just become like the League of Nations and it would, would enter another global conflict. 
So the veto is the price you pay for all the major powers to be able to subordinate some of their interests to the collective. And it is the only way, therefore, of ensuring that might is not right. So the biggest supporters of the United Nations are the small countries. The 105 countries, the majority of the countries in the world that have less than 5 million people, they are the, the strongest supporters of the United Nations because they know that flawed as it is with the veto, one of the biggest flaws, it does protect their interests. And if the United Nations didn't exist or two of the big powers left the United Nations, they would not have that protection. And that's, I think, a very important point. One of the surprising issues when I went to the United Nations in 2009 was that I had thought that the G7, as it was at the time, I think it was maybe even the G8 at the time, was going to be sort of resented by the UN. Not a bit of it. Because UN members said that, look, if the rich countries want to go away and do their own thing and talk about their own issues, that's absolutely fine. Right? What they hated, the UN members hated, was the G20. Why? Because the G20 had co-opted some of their traditional champions because it had South Africa and India and Argentina on it and therefore had aspirations, which we saw in practice after the financial crisis 2008, to have some form of global governance. And that's what the other, you know, 173 countries hated the most. So they hated the G20 with a great passion, whereas they were entirely relaxed by the G7. Now that had come as a bit of spies me because I hadn't sort of thought in those terms, but it is logical because they thought that somehow the things that were being done at the UN would somehow be decided in another form. That's the value. So yes, the veto is a flaw. I don't think there will be reform. Um, and if there was reform, it would actually make the UN less effective than it is at the moment, because you would just have more vetoes. Uh, you expanded the Security Council. So you would then have, you know, India and Brazil and South Africa and Germany and others, all of whom would potentially have a veto. So even, you know, more interest would come into play. So yes, it has all those flaws, but it exists and it wouldn't exist without that, and it does achieve quite a lot um, despite those things. Uh, thank you. I mean, that's a yeah. That, that, it's a, a a very good point, well made. So 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 I I appreciate that. Um, now, sadly, we're we're pretty much getting to the end of, of of the time that we have, which you know I'm I'm disappointed. But I'd, I'd keep this conversation going much longer. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. But um, how, how I like to end these interviews because I think talking about um, international relations and national and international security can be like slightly depressing um, because a lot of terrible things happen in the world and you know the for example here the UN is the best thing we have but it's still like horrendously flawed um, I, I like to try and end these interviews on like an optimistic note um, and and so how how I would like to bring that into this interview is you know as somebody who has had a like a, a very long and you know, almost un unparalleledly distinguished, um, like diplomatic career for, for the UK, who, who's worked at the absolute height of multilateralism at the UN, and then the height of national security, as the national security advisor. I was just wondering, like, 
are, are you optimistic about the world? The, the way that things are going seem like pretty terrible. And, and I would have said that before a global pandemic, which, which killed so many people and, and made life so, so difficult for everybody else. Um, and, and then you had a coronavirus pandemic on top of it. Are, are you optimistic about, about the future? Are things going to get better? And, and if so, like, like how are you optimistic and, and what are you optimistic about? Well, that, that's an even bigger question, Joe, than your, than your earlier one. Um, look, it, there are lots of reasons to be pessimistic. There's no question of that. Um, but I am actually overall quite optimistic about the sort of longer term strategic future because you have to focus on some of the extraordinary longer term trends. So, for instance, in the last 10 years, fewer human beings have been killed in conflict than in any period of 10 years for over 150 years. Now, it doesn't feel like that because we're seeing conflicts all over the world, but the that is the reality. Fewer people are dying of millions fewer are dying of disease. You know, we've eradicated disease like smallpox. Age expectancy is going up in almost every single country in the world. So public health is improving. So wealth is improving. You know, 500 people taken out of absolute poverty over the last 10 years. So these are big strategic trends, which I think obviously we should benefit from. Equally, there were some longer term trends that are pretty worrying. Climate change really is, is one of those. The breakdown of the rules-based order is, is another that we've discussed. So it's, it's not easy to say on a scale of you know, one to 10, how optimistic are you? I have huge faith in the sort of perseverance, if you like, of the human race. I mean, one fact which some people find reassuring other people find pretty horrifying, is that we've reached a stage of development, the human race has reached a stage of development, where we cannot be made extinct. Now, you may think that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it doesn't matter what would happen to the world. You know, an asteroid could completely destroy the planet and human beings would continue to exist because now we can, you know, set up colonies in other planets and stuff or in space even if we even if we were the world was destroyed let alone if there was a nuclear war and, you know people would survive and the human race would survive in the way that the dinosaurs didn't in some sort of now as i say that's not necessarily a reassuring concept but we have reached a stage of uh, technical cognitive ability that means that we can control our own future will there be mass killings Yes, of course there will. But nonetheless, there is a greater understanding today than there was, say, 100 years ago, that the world is interconnected. That, you know, I do not believe there is going to be a conflict between the United States and China. People talk about the Thucydides trap, that, you know, there's never been a rising power, etc., etc. Um, I don't believe in that. Um, Anyway, the United States overtook the United Kingdom without a, a conflict. But you can, there will be a modus vivendi between the United States and China. And there is a deterrent value in the power of those two, um, uh, two countries. A bit like there was the deterrence in the nuclear war. 
there is a deterrence built into uh, cyber. Uh, so it's, 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 I don't see there being that sort of global conflict that we saw in the 19th century, the 20th century happening again because of globalization. It may be getting fragmented at the edges, but these, the, I mean, the classic example is the United States and China are still intermittently interwoven. So, you know, they can be closing down consulates, they can be bashing each other over the COVID-19 virus, they can be imposing trade sanctions on each other, etc. But the reality is that economies are fundamentally linked together, and they both know that, and that acts as a deterrent. And so, in that sense, I don't think we are going to face the sort of catastrophe um, of the world wars that we had uh, in the 20th century. So in that sense, also, I am optimistic. Well, uh, th thank you for that. I mean, you know, if, if you've served for six years at the UN and, and at the height of uh, national security in this country, but you, you can still be optimistic about uh, the future, then, then maybe I should be optimistic about the future as well. Um, so, Mark, I, I, I can't explain how much I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. This has been an absolutely fascinating interview. Um, I, for one, have learned a, a huge amount. Uh, and, and to hear your insights on some of these, these really important issues has just been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I think, sadly, we've got to sort of draw it to a close there. I was wondering if you had any kind of final thoughts you, you wanted to share. No, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Joe, and, uh, and good luck with the future of the Stuff Society. Right, well, um, thank you, everyone, for, for listening. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did recording it. Like I said up top, uh, we've got many more of these to come with some really exciting guests. So if you enjoyed this and you are interested in defence and foreign affairs, please check out our website. Again, that's www.stubsociety.org.uk and give our Facebook page a follow as well. Our next episode will be coming out in the next few weeks and we're really excited to share that with you, so keep your eyes peeled on Facebook for it. Finally, I'd like to thank Sofia Sambria de Felipe, our incredible podcast editor who put this together in record time and is awesome as ever. I'd also like to thank Matthew Schaefer for his research. Right, well then, all I've got left to say is, wherever you are, whatever you're up to, I hope you're having a really great day. Catch you next time.